of it even after you see it. The way Tim plays this nibbler game. Honestly, I haven't talked about the record for years. I just, I don't like blowing my own horn, I guess. The first time I saw Nibbler, I walked in the arcade down at Twin Galaxies. What's the big deal? He's got 700 million. Well, it doesn't matter what he's got. When he's done, I'll just wipe it off anyway. There are millions of people that can't score 10,000. The billion on Nibbler was one of the seven summits. First billion point game was going to take place. Like Everest, you knew it could be climbed. 10 million to go, half hour to get there. The highest score ever recorded on any video game ever. I can't believe I'm going to get it. A billion points on Nibbler. He got a billion points on Nibbler. What the f is Nibbler? Tim is coming out of retirement. He's the big guy. Is he still a big guy? I don't like to brag, but I don't think there's a player in the world that could have beat me. Video game players have a somewhat inflated ego. Who's the best player? I am. Am I making this shit up? No. Is this the way we do things around here? Yeah. You're out of line, Oh. Dwayne is just a natural. I'm gonna go for a billion. I wanna see what it looks like. I wanna prove that I can do it again. The new age of athleticism. My husband's gonna wipe the floor with him. Let's do this thing. Work through the maze, pick up all the dots, and not run into yourself. It's fast. Killer's my game. Lightning strikes. This is my record. It's just a question of time before someone breaks it. Son of a bitch. It's just that no one has Nibbler games. What's Nibbler? What's Nibbler? God, I'm sick of that question. <laughs> and everything. Wow, I need to get good at this game. Is there any cute girls watching? No. That game is crazy. Not a lot of people have done that. Home route. If you want something bad enough, go get it. Where the hell is this haze coming from? Imagine scoring one billion points in a video game. And I'm not talking about one of these games that just throws out points for any old thing. I'm talking about back in the day when you had hard video games that were like difficult where you had to put hours and hours into it I mean that's a true gamer true classic gamer and we're happy today to be talking with Tim McVeigh he's going to be in the, well he's already he was in but you can see him in Man vs. Snake it's going to be a do, uh, documentary on Nibbler it's really awesome so I just want to say thanks uh, Tim for talking with us today oh, thank you for having me I appreciate it so I guess the best way to start is at the beginning because a lot of people always talk about their scores like what they can get into in a score and seeing like twin galaxies seeing the different records that people get you know you always have that gamer who talks about oh i i, I could do that i could do that but man they just don't i don't think they understand what some of these games look like like when i think about like donkey kong most people can't even get past like the second level i mean where did you start as far as your love of video games I started at Twin Galaxies, actually. Um, as a kid, I grew up in Ottumwa, Iowa, and that's where Twin Galaxies Arcade was physically located. So that was my local arcade. I'd ride my BMX bike down to the arcade and drop quarters in and start playing games. So what was, like, the first game that you got your, like, really into? <clears throat> wow, nobody's asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> um I played everything. I mean, uh, before Twin Galaxies opened, there was the local skating rink in Ottumwa. And, you know, I was, I'm old, so I was there like day one. You know, I'd go roller skating and they had what I call video games, but at the time they were more like a mechanical game, like uh, driving games and stuff where it was like a, I don't know, like a roll of plastic or something that would scroll by. And this was before, you know, actual honest video games. And then there's pinball machines and pool and foosball and all that stuff. And then eventually there was video games, um, Space Invaders, Space Wars came in, um, you know, the the early games from the very beginning. So I've seen pretty much everything go by. Um, first game I was really into, you, are you familiar with the old Atari football? It was like the X's and the O's. Oh, yeah. Uh, they had that at the, the skating rink. And, uh, I mean, we'd... we'd 
blisters and rip skin off your fingers trying to spin that track ball to, to run downfield and stuff. And that was probably the first one I was really, really into. Me and my friends were really competitive on that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the first football game that I really played was 10-yard fight. <laughs> which okay. I know is later on. Um, but I remember going to the arcade and seeing like all these different games. And what was really crazy is you put the, you put a quarter in and you think to yourself, Hey, I got this. And man, some of those games back, uh, back in the day would just tear you up. I just think about it. Like yeah. today, kids would probably literally cry if they put a, a quarter into a game and literally two minutes later you were done. And Absolutely. When I, yeah, I used to go to arcade and I would see people, go and play games like I remember uh, one of the things that really struck me was there was this guy who came in with a briefcase in a suit he would take one quarter put it in Miss Patman and be there for an hour and, pe- yep. and you know by then you already had the original Street Fighter out and you had these other games that people were into and they'd be all on that people would slowly start to come over because they're like hey who's this old guy kicking ass in this game uh, I mean can you tell us for people that maybe don't understand what was that experience like where you would go into an arcade and you would see these games that were like totally brutal and then you would see that one person who was just owning it? Well, I guess the first part is, is we didn't realize they were totally brutal back then. I mean, cause that, that's what they were. Sure. They were all like that. So it was just normal. That's how we looked at them. You know, that's, that's what video games were as at that time. Um, games like Defender and Stargate and Robotron by today's standards, even they're still extremely brutal. And that's why I think a lot of the classic gamers from back in the day are still really good today because the skill set they, they learned back then still translates to today. Today's games got a lot easier. Back in the day, there was no difficulty level. You put your quarter in, you played. It was the game, and that was it. But at the time, I don't know that we realized it so much. We kind of did. I mean, the, the suit thing kind of strikes me because Twin Galaxies, you'd have businessmen that came in during the afternoon on their lunch breaks. They would come in wearing suits and ties and carrying a briefcase, and they'd come in and play a few games during lunch and leave, and then you'd see them come back after work, and they'd, they'd kill a little bit more time before they went home. But you would notice um, just gradually, I guess, if somebody was owning a game, one or two people would be walking by, you know, waiting to play it next or whatever, and they'd, they'd see it, and then they'd kind of stop and stand and stare and watch and Sooner or later, somebody else walked by, and you pretty soon you had a little group gathered around. And I guess the only way I can compare that to today's gamer is people that sit and watch Twitch streams, and you see, you know, X amount of play- people are, are sitting there viewing. The viewers are watching it. Well, back in the day, obviously, there was nothing like that. There was no internet. There was no cameras. That, I mean, it was there. You were either there or you, you didn't see it. So you'd have a crowd gathering around if you were, you know, above average on a game doing something people hadn't really seen. They're sitting there watching going, hmm. How's that guy doing that? I want to do that. that. That's how it kind of started like that. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that people, especially if you think back in the 90s, you know, you still you had that growing where people were saying, hey, games are for kids. But then you had other people like, no, games are going to be huge. And it wasn't considered like this nerdy thing. But what's really interesting is, like I said, even earlier than that, you had, you know, gr- grown people playing games and liking it. And then it seemed like there was like this point where it wasn't cool to play games anymore except if you're like in a basement somewhere and then there is a resurgence of it where it's like oh now everybody wants to be a gamer and people are now using that today as some kind of tag to hopefully get fans or followers or whatever when people were playing it back in you know way back in the day when no one would even care about you if you said that i played that you played a video game but there was still that difference between those who just went into an arcade and played a game. Like for me, one of the games that first caught me was Spy Hunter because they had the one where you actually sit down and you could drive it. And cockpit. To me, yeah, that the cockpit that was great too. And and like hard driving when they had that version, I was like, it was really hard driving. That was one of those games that it took all my quarters and I barely did any anything in it. When was it that you found that, hey, I, there's a game that I can play. There's some games that I can play much longer than other people who are getting killed in two, three minutes. Well, I probably had a little bit of an advantage that most gamers didn't grow up with. You've probably seen the documentary King of Kong, or at least are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Billy Mitchell and a lot of the, the kind of, I guess I'd call them the usual suspects that are in a lot of these documentaries. Um, early on, Walter Day had a kid that played Defender for 24 hours down at Twin Galaxies. So Walter, he was curious. He's like, wow, that, that's a really good score. I wonder what the world record is. So he contacted Williams, the maker of Defender, and he says, well, what's the world record? And they said, well, I don't know. We, we don't 
keep track of that. Walter says, well, who does? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody does that we know of. So Walter started doing that. And it's amazing what he was able to do with Twin Galaxies, how it started, because like I said, this was before the internet. This was, you had, most people had cord telephones. You know, this is obviously before cell phones. Long distance charges were pretty high when you made a call that was out of, out of town, out of state. No internet. I don't know how he managed to get the word out the way that he did, but um, just almost overnight scores started coming in. So the reason I say I was kind of spoiled a little bit, a little bit fortunate, maybe more than other people was, over a short period of time, Atom One Twin Galaxies kind of became what they referred to as the Dodge City of video games. So you had Billy Mitchell come into town. You had Ben Gold come into town. You had Steve Harris come into town. You had all these great, just awesome players from all over the country that, you know, when they came in, they all had their game, so to speak, that they were good at. You know, Billy Mitchell was playing uh, Donkey Kong and Miss Pac-Man back then. Ben Gold was playing Millipede and Satan's Hollow. Steve Harris was playing Popeye. And I don't just mean playing it. I mean, when they came in and they played, they played at a level that you had never seen before. You know, kind of like what you just said as far as people watching. And so on any given weekend, I could walk into Twin Galaxies, especially in the summer, and some of these now famous, you know, kind of household name superstars were there. And I was just another gamer that was in the arcade while they were there. But I was able to talk to them. I was able to see them play. And, it, it you know, I seen tips and tricks that I probably wouldn't have seen without them being there. And and eventually I got to the point where I was doing some of the stuff that the other people were seeing tips and tricks to. You know, just being around that level pushed you to excel yourself. It pushed you to a higher level. All of us competing against each other. And the, the crazy thing is you look back right now and a lot of these classic scores have fallen in the last three or four years that have stood for, you know, 25 years, almost a quarter of a century. And the people that are beating them today are using MAME and they're using save states and they're using, you know, rack advance or whatever it's called. They're skipping ahead to the part. When they sit down to play, they can start where they're having trouble. They can advance the game to that. They don't have to play the five or six hours to get there to where they their game is ending. They can just start there and work on it. We didn't have that. Um, we, we I, I say we, us, us classic gamers in the 80s, I think are some of the best gamers in history and it kind of bears out a little bit. Some of us are starting to get a little famous here or there for whatever reason, but we destroyed games. I mean, a new game would come out and within two or three months we had it mastered and we had no tools to do that. We had no camcorders. We had not, you know, no video to watch, no streams to watch, no save states to play from. We just put our quarter and every game we played cost a quarter. So there was no, Oh, well I died early. I'm just going to throw this game away and start over. We didn't do that because that was 25 cents. You know, we're, we're going to ride that out until the game ended. And when you look back on that point in history and you see what scores were put up and how long they stood, I'm in awe. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of my score and I'm sure that there's quite a few other players from that era that are very proud of their scores too. And they're, they're still hard to beat today, even with all these extra tools and all these hours and in some cases years where players have grouped together and studied the game. Back in the 80s, there's only a couple people that could ever get anywhere near a kill screen. We didn't even really know what a kill screen was on Donkey Kong. We just knew there was some, some kind of a glitch and the game ended. Now there's, I don't know, somewhere probably around 20 people that can pretty much do a kill screen almost any time they play if they want to. So the tools have advanced. I don't think these players are necessarily better than what the 80s players were. They've just had a lot more time to study what we did, and they've had a lot of different tools to analyze and advance their gameplay. That's why I think the 80s players are just amazing, that how fast. And then the other thing was the turnover. Mm. A new game would come out. We would, you know, in a short, short period of time, weeks, maybe a month or two, we would have a, just an absurd score on that that stood for 25 years. Well, the thing was, is we only played that game for, you know, weeks, maybe a month or two, and then the next game was out. So we were constantly moving and evolving from title to title. You know, we went from Space Invaders to Pac-Man to Donkey Kong to Miss Pac-Man, you know. So we weren't just sitting there and playing one game for, for months and months and months and years on, on end like some of these modern players are trying to get good at some of these old games. The Donkey Kong community, it's... Uh, I think it's pretty amazing. I think there's a lot of really talented players, but I think that the players that are really playing it are playing it with the idea in their head that they're going to get famous. You know, like King of Kong was out. So I'm going to get famous because I'm going to play Donkey Kong and I'm going to beat that score. We played games we liked. We played games for fun. We weren't going, oh, I'm going to get famous on this game. This game's fun. I'm going to play it. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that a lot of times people don't understand because 
uh, unfortunately, sometimes as gamers, we just like to eat our own. And it's 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 yes. there's, there's a difference between competition, like when you played against somebody, you want to beat them, and then some of the vitriol and hate that you actually see, which doesn't make any sense because if you lift up gamers, you're lifting up yourself. When you get to the point, like you said, where people are saying, hey, uh, I hope to make be famous um, by pl being the score, just that thought alone you should be proud of because that's something that you can be. You can be well-known. You can be liked. You can be appreciated for playing a game where other people would say you're wasting your time. Considering the right. multi-billion dollar industry, there's a lot of people out there not wasting their time. And the same thing with esports. But going back to what you said about the different challenges, I remember playing like Mortal Kombat even, that's a newer game obviously, but the original Mortal Kombat on the arcades and how more difficult it was playing, standing up there with people coming around and watching. And like for instance, if you messed up a fatality or something, you know, you kind of look silly. And it, yeah. you had a crowd, you're not in your house where you could just keep going and going and going by yourself. And I've talked to even pro gamers today who talk about, you know, there's some those people that they can never do this outside their house. Uh, what less in an arcade with a machine that you didn't prep. You you don't you may not even know. You may just walk into a laundry mat for all you know and say, you know what, I'm gonna dominate this game. So you were out there on your own and is like out in the field doing it. Can you just tell us maybe about the differences of like standing there, you know, like I was looking at the trailer for Man vs. Snake, like when you got back into it saying, man, I got I got to be here for hours and hours and hours do playing this game. The challenges between that and someone sitting in their house with a controller or a keyboard. Um, an arcade machine is definitely a different animal. I mean, it's, it's a fixed position. You can use bar stools. You can get a taller chair. You can put your chair on top of something. You know, you can raise the seat up so you can get comfortable seated playing it. But you'll never be as comfortable as you would be sitting on a sofa or, in a, you know, in an easy chair watching your television with a controller in your hands or a, a joystick controller on your lap or something like that. But it has its advantages, too, for, for like what we're doing for marathons, for like Nibbler. If I sat down in a real soft, comfy, cozy chair to play that game, I don't know, I could play it for two days. I'd probably get too comfortable and get really tired. So that that was a different environment. And it's, it's funny, I didn't think about it, because like I said, back in the day, you played in the arcade and there was people around. And that's just, that's how it was. You played, and if there's people there and they watched, they watched. And if they didn't, they didn't. And if they did, well you either let it bother you or you just kind of ignored it and you played. You didn't have a lot of options. Those were your options. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't shut the door. You couldn't turn the blind down or whatever. So people today, I've had friends come over and stuff during different marathon attempts and they're almost shocked that while I'm playing, you know, like 30 hours into the game, the game's in front of me and I'm focused on the game, but then I'm sitting here and I'm watching the Hawkeye football game on TV and I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing other things other than just playing my game. And then, the other thing that was different now is I have a webcam up on my machine, and it's it's on the screen. People can see the screen, see the score, see everything that's going on. And my wife would sit on the laptop on Twitch, and, and any comments where people ask questions or, you know, whatever, she would read them aloud to me. And then I would just simply reply because, you know, as you can see the video, my webcam has audio also. So I'm sitting there chatting with people that are watching, you know, and talking and holding conversations and stuff, and people are just like, how do you do that? How, you know, how do you focus on your game and keep playing and, and do that too? And I'm like, it's just a, it's a habit from those old days, you know, cause that's how it was in the arcade. Somebody would be standing there talking to you. And a lot of times you'd talk to them, you know, we weren't really rude. That was kind of our social media back in the day. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have, you know, we go to the arcade even when we really didn't have money and just kind of hang out and talk to some of the players and watch other people play and, and just kind of hang out and talk and have fun and stuff. So, you got talked to while you were gaming, and a lot of times you talked to other people while they were gaming. And I hear today, you know, like you said, people in esports and whatnot, they can't really focus or it, it distracts them, and it, it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit because we weren't we weren't ever shielded from that. We were that's how it was, you know. We were just in the fire, so to speak, all the time. And don't get me wrong; I mean, sometimes you go to the arcade and you were the only person in there. Nobody was watching you. Nobody was bugging you. And, but a lot of times there was a lot of people and there was constant people in and out, doors opening, closing, you know, different things like that. So you just learned that's how it was. And that that was normal. So today it, it just seems weird to hear, well, he can only play in his bedroom or he's got to be in a closed room where, you know, nobody's talking to him. There's no distractions. And I can see that in some games that uh, like the fighting games, for example, maybe um, there's some really intricate moves, some combos you have to pull off and, you know, concentration and all that. But then you look at the people that go to Evo and the, the big contest. 
how are you ever going to do well in one of those contests if you have to be locked away in a room, you know, isolated to, to do good outside of it? You got to kind of practice in that, I think, to play good in it and not let it bother you. So it's it's different. It's weird. It's kind of strange, really. Can you tell us about that road uh, for Nibbler? Because I admit I never played it before. You know, I I, lo I looked at the I've seen it before, but it wasn't my type of game at the time. Um, what was it like? just coming to it saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to play this game. Was it just another game that came out? Because obviously getting a score like that, how difficult, how much time it takes, you know, you have to have a dedication. So just take us through that step that led up to your high score. Well, I've seen it a lot in younger gamers today. You know, when you're a teenager, you're, you got a little bit of cockiness to you, a little bit of swagger, you know. A lot a lot of kids do. Um, there's People are competitive in a lot of areas, and, uh, if you've seen the trailer, the animated part where it showed Tom Asaki playing and then it showed me behind him and I don't remember exactly what I said. Well, it doesn't matter what you get. I'm just going to beat it anyway. You know, something like I said something like that because, I mean, I was I was 15. I was 16. I was stupid. You know, I'd never seen the game until I saw Tom playing it. So am I going to beat him? I don't know. Chances are probably not. But didn't let me, you know, didn't prevent me from running my mouth like normal. But I was drawn to the game for two reasons because, well, probably for more than that, really. But Tom's, I don't remember what his reply was, but something like you couldn't beat me on your best day or something. You know, he, he had a reply and I was just like, whatever. But it looked interesting because it was fast. The, the, the pure speed of it, once you get past the early levels and it speeds up, that's when I like playing it. Those first few levels is like nails on a chalkboard. It's so slow. It's like, oh, can we fast forward through this? And uh, it was the speed. The speed drew me to it. Uh, that and Robotron. Robotron is my favorite game of all time because of the intensity. All the characters that are on the screen, and it's, it's just absolute chaos. And it's fast. You have to react. You have to think. But you can't think too long. you got to react and have good reflexes. So Nibbler kind of drew me to it based on the speed factor. And just that first time seeing Tom and seeing all the people around him, and then there was two other guys that were local at the time, Mark Hoff and Sean Turner. And the three of us, for whatever reason, we just we kind of started playing each other. We had kind of like a friendly little competition. And ironically, out of the three, I was the worst of the three. Mark and Sean were beating me early on by quite a bit. But for whatever reason, I was the only one that was determined enough or stubborn enough or whatever phrase you'd like to throw to it that, that kept after it. Once uh, Sean and Mark could get up to, to wave 99, the wave 99, it rolls back to 80. And it just cycles, 80 through 99, over and over and over, as long as you can keep the game going. Once they could do that, and essentially, oh, I can play this game as long as I can stay awake, that was the end of it for them. They just, they, they were like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want to stay awake for two days. I'm going to go do something else. But I was like, nobody scored a billion yet. Walter, Walter Day... He made that first billion point game, you know, just, oh my God, it's like the first four minute mile, you know, it doesn't matter if the score gets beat. It doesn't matter if the score gets beat a million times, but there's only going to ever be one person that can say that they were the first one to do it. And he just made it, you know, to a 15, 16 year old kid, this just sounded like, wow, wow, that's cool. I can, you know, he just, he kind of psyched you up and he just made it seem so huge. And I just, I kept playing it. I liked the game. I liked the challenge. I liked the speed. And I just, I wanted to see what I could do. And and Walter was encouraging me every step of the way. He's like, well, when do you get a marathon? You know, you, you got the skill set. You can do it. We, we can stay open. You know, we'll talk to your mom and get, get your mom's permission. And then I'll, I'll let the, I'll let you stay in here and you can do it whenever you want to do it. And very supportive. So, I mean, that helped a lot. You know, you got to be in the right place at the right time on some of that stuff. There's times as a kid, I'd go into an arcade and I'd put a quarter in, uh, you know, a nibbler machine. There wasn't a lot, but there was a few around. I've had the plug pulled on me in other arcades. Oh. You know, you drop your quarter in, you played an hour, half hour to an hour, maybe longer. I've had the arcade owners or attendants walk up and just pull the cord and say, well, you got your 25 cents worth. Wow. Because, because the machine's not making them any money if I'm sitting there playing it on a quarter for, you know, a substantial length of time. And that's what really set Twin Galaxies apart from everybody else. Not just the fact that Walter was willing to keep track of the scores and stay open and encourage the gamers, but he he had to lose money in that process. You know, if I went in there on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock when the arcade opened and I dropped a quarter in that machine and I played it until Saturday night at 10 o'clock when the arcade closed, that machine made 25 cents that day. Right. That didn't even pay for the electricity to run that machine all day. A lot of the arcades wouldn't let you do that. 
Walter not only let you, he encouraged it. He thought it was amazing. And he he pushed everybody and he encouraged them and he gave them the tools to, to chase those records. It was just a, it was a really cool place and a really cool time. So we got to check out the trailer for Man vs. Snake. Can you tell us about your involvement in the film? Well, it started out, uh, Tim Kinsey and Andrew Suckler work in Hollywood. They're editors at the time. They were working, I believe, on Battlestar Galactica. I, um, I, know, I know Andy was on Battlestar Galactica, and I think Tim was on Eureka. And I forget which one did it, but one of them basically smuggled a, a main machine into the editing studio which if, if listeners aren't familiar, I imagine they are. MAME stands for Multi-Arcade Machine Emulator. And they, they had a full-sized arcade machine running MAME that had all these various ROMs loaded on it. And they stuck it into the studio. And the, the premise being, you know, hey, we're on break. This is downtime. We're going to screw around, play a few games on lunch, you know, whatever. So they had all these little friendly competitions. And, uh, you know, most of them were fairly close. You know, one would beat one by, you know, marginal score. And finally, they get tired of this game, go to the next one, so forth and so on. Well, eventually, somewhere down the line, they stumbled across Nibbler. And they started playing Nibbler. And I don't remember the exact details, but I, I think it was Tim that really kind of put the wood to Andy a little bit on that one, if I remember right. I might have it backwards. But one of them distanced themselves from the other one considerably. And they ended up scoring, I, I believe they said around a time, it was like 400,000 or something, which they thought was huge, you know. That game gets fast really quick, and if you've never seen it played at the level that I can play it at or that Dwayne or some of the other people in the film can play it at, 400,000, that's, that's actually a really good score. Most people that play the game can't beat the 50,000 default high score on it. So anyway, they're like, wow, 400,000, that's really good. I wonder what the world record is on this. So that they went and Googled it or binged it or whatever it was they did. And, uh, well, they found my score. And they looked at it, and then they looked at each other, and then they looked at it again, and they're like, no. He, he, didn't, he didn't score a billion points on that game. <laughs> Nobody got a billion. That's a typo. You know, somebody fat-fingered that. They, they added an extra couple zeros. That can't be right. Well, where they found the score was on Twin Galaxies. And at the time, Walter Day still owned Twin Galaxies or was one of the, the owners. I'm not sure if he was the outright owner, but he was still real heavily involved in it in, on the ownership side. And Tim and Andy contacted. They sent a, I don't know if it was like contact at Twin Galaxies or, or you know what it was, but they sent a contact email and, and Walter replied and, and they said, well, that score, that, that's not right, is it? And, and Walter, he replied back, well, yeah, it's right. I, I saw Tim do it. He did it in my arcade. I witnessed it. And they were just, they were blown away. I mean, they're like, they were dumbfounded. They're like, how in the hell did somebody score that many points on that game? So they asked Walter if he would get pass along my contact information to him. And he said he wouldn't, but he would check with me and see if I gave permission to do so. And uh, when he asked me about it and told me who they were and why they were interested, I was kind of like, okay, Walter, who, who put you up to this? <laughs> Nobody cares about, you know, this was... 2006 2007 somewhere around there i'm like nobody cares about the score i got in 1984 that was you know long ago and far away and long forgotten and he insisted they wanted to talk to me i'm like okay yeah oh, whatever give him my contact info sure go ahead i don't care and uh i don't know if he responded to him immediately you know and gave him the info right away or if it was a little while or if it just took him a while but i didn't hear anything from him for a couple months and by the time they actually contacted me, I, I honestly basically forgot about it. So I get this phone call, and I don't remember if it was Tim or Andy at the time, but they identified, you know, who they were, why they were calling. And I'm like, wait, what? You're who? You're calling me what? Hang on a second, back up. And it, we talked to Walter Day, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, and we started talking, and, and their original premise was they were blown away by the score. And Walter had told him that, that uh, Tomway had done a civic day named Tim McVeigh Day, you know, for the score, for getting the first billion. And they wanted to just uh, come out here to Iowa and they wanted to interview me, just do a short interview. And at the time, their idea was uh, like a 15, 20 minute documentary, just a short form, you know, get this out there. They, th they thought it was interesting and there was a little something they could do to just make a little doc that would be interesting and entertaining and throw it up on YouTube. And, and that's what they were going to do. And, and that's how it started. They came out here and they did an interview and 
they went through the old photo albums that my mom had taken pictures and uh, the old newspaper clippings that she'd kept in the scrapbook. And they scanned stuff and took pictures of stuff and did a video, you know, interview with me. And uh, they left and, you know, I thought, well, that, that's it. Well, that was, uh, that was November 2007, I believe. Uh, fast forward to 2008, they really hadn't done a whole lot yet. As far as, you know, I hadn't heard anything from them. You know, hey, have, have you done any editing? You know, what are you done? What are you doing? I, I didn't get too worried about it, you know. It'll be done when it's done. I didn't know it was going to turn into this, so I wasn't bugging them and asking any questions at that point. So Walter gets a hold of me, and he's going to Chicago. He's going to an event out there called the VGS 2008, the Video Game Summit in Chicago. And he asked me if my wife and I would like to ride along with him. I'm like, sure. I don't know what VGS is, but if it's gaming related, I'm in. Let's go. I ain't been to Chicago for a while. Let's check it out. So Walter planned this out with the filmmakers, and I didn't even know about it. But the plan was... I never had received an, an official certificate or any kind of an award or recognition for that score. I mean, back in the day, they did Tim McVeigh Day. I mean, that was recognition, obviously. But from that time forward, once Twin Galaxies was resurrected in the late 90s as, a, as an internet scoreboard, they had world record certificates and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So Walter had made arrangements with the filmmakers, and Tim was going to fly into Chicago and... He, when he got to the event, Walter was going to present me with my, my world record certificate for the original Billion back in 84. Tim was going to film it, and that was going to be the ending of the doc. That was the ending that they were looking for. So still, you know, we're back in a 15, 20-minute short-form doc format. So all that goes down, takes place, and uh, we're riding back from Chicago. It's, it's like a four- to five-hour drive, and Walter and I are talking, well, what if this, and what if that? And he says, uh, you think he can still play? And I'm like... I don't know. I haven't seen a nibbler machine for 20 years. I said, I would like to think that I could. I mean, you don't really forget something that was that big of a part of your life at one time. It's kind of like riding a bike, I, I thought. You know, you get me a machine, I can play. Sure, I can play just like I played yesterday. Yeah, right. But, uh, we, yeah, we did the what if, what if. And he's like, would you do it again if you had a machine? I'm like, well, the only way to ever know that answer is to find a machine. And uh, that's kind of where that conversation ended. Two days later, I was sitting here at home, and I talked to my wife about it a few times, and I finally I, I contacted Walter. I said, let's find out. I said, uh, if anybody can find a machine and, and get one, acquire one, so that we can find out, I said, it would be probably you and Billy Mitchell. I said, so when you get a chance, talk to Billy and see what you can find. And it probably wasn't 48 hours. The filmmakers called me, Tim and Andy, and Walter had talked to them. And they went and done some digging, and they found a machine on eBay, which I had actually been looking and did not see. I don't know how I didn't see it, and they did. But anyway, uh, they contacted the seller, and they arranged for him to take it off eBay, and they purchased the machine privately. And as it turns out, the seller was one of the programmers of the machine. Oh, man. So it's just like everything fell into space, into the right spot, into the right space and time, like the stars aligned or something, you know. We took the trip. We asked the question. We talked about it. Hey, let's do it. Hey, look, there's a machine. You know, it's, it's like you, you couldn't plan that. I mean, you really couldn't. And uh, that's where it really started going from there. Once I had a machine in my living room, um, I started playing, and they got more hours and hours and hours and hours of footage than they ever dreamt of having. When they got done filming everything that they had filmed, between my house and Dwayne's house and uh, out at uh, all the, the MAGFest, the Music and Gaming Festival out in Alexandria, Virginia, that they took us to in 2009. I, I believe they said they had over 500 hours of footage. Wow. So when they got down to, well, we're not doing a 15, 20-minute doc anymore. Now we're doing a feature-length doc. Now we got all this footage. What are we going to use? So, I mean, that was a huge thing. That was I was at least a couple of years going through just footage after footage after footage. And, and then something would happen and uh, Dwayne would play or I would play and there's more footage and the story would change. And there for a while, it just seemed like it was never going to quit changing. And come to find out later, one of the things that they were kind of waiting and hoping for was that I would break the score again because the story started with me and they kind of wanted the story to end with me. And, but they didn't tell me that. You know, and it was kind of like back in the day. It took me seven tries the first time to, to finally nail it. Ironically, it was my seventh marathon in the modern time where I hit it again. 
which is why I haven't been in a big hurry to play it again. I'm not sure I got seven more in me. <laughs> but, uh, they were kind of waiting for that Hollywood ending, you know, and all through this process, I tried to involve everybody that I could that was playing Nibbler because I liked the game and I thought it would be more entertaining and be more true to life if, if everybody that was involved was involved. Because King of Kong, you hear the controversies. Tim Serbia, they, they left him out. When that whole movie was filmed at the time, Tim had the world record. But you watch that movie and you don't hear his name. And it just looks like it's Billy versus Steve and you never hear about Tim. So there was a lot of people that knew that, that were really into it back then. And there was a lot of controversy, that and a great many other things about that film. And I thought, well, if they're going to do a doc and it's going to be a feature length and it's going to be on DVD and Blu-ray at some point, and I don't want any of that shit. I don't want any of that cloud hanging over this film. And I, what makes me any better than these other guys? These guys have a compelling part of this story, too. And I, I told them about Dwayne Richard, and I told them about Rick Carter, and I told them about Elijah Hader, and... Um, have you actually seen the documentary yet? No, I haven't seen only trailer. Okay. Well, I don't want to say too much to give it away, but um, the the film focuses primarily on myself and, and Dwayne. Um, there's a couple people that's already commented, you know, some stuff has happened since the film. And like I said, if you want to go Google it and look into it, I'll feel free, but I'm not going to give it away on here. Um, people think, well, why did they end it the way they ended it? At some point in time, you got to end it. Yeah. You know, I, I got to a point where I said, I'm done. I'm not playing again, even though I want to. I want to I want to push it farther than it is. I said, I'm done. And the, the two reasons were I, the job I work at. I'm working six days a week and I, I didn't have time to play. And when I got a vacation that came up, you know, three day weekend, four day weekend, I wasn't wasting it playing that game. Yeah. I, was, I was enjoying my time off, spending some time with my wife and just taking some time to relax. But that was part of the reason. And the other reason was, is I realized that every time I play, I change the story. And I, I told Tim and Andy, I said, you guys have enough footage. You have enough options on how you can tell this story and how you would like to end it. I said, I don't care how it ends. I said, it just needs to end at this point. Cause we were almost six years in. It's like six years, you know, let that sink in. That's a long time. And I said, I'm not playing the game again and, until the movie's done. I said, and I've stuck to it. I haven't played it since then. And uh, there's been some stuff that's happened that could have potentially changed the story. But it, like I said, at some point you got to tell your story. What what story is it that you intend to tell? It's a documentary, so I hate to say tell your story because it's not a created story. But at, at some point you have to say this is where it starts and this is where it stops. Even though we have this, you're going to focus on this, you know, for whatever reason. So that's what this is. I mean, that's the story that's out there now has finally been decided on by the editors and they've, they've told their story the way that they envisioned it. And I think they did a great job. Um, I was really proud of it. The first time I saw it, they did a really good job. I know that they talk about how, you know, in the film, how you go back and, and you start playing again uh, for, I think it's interesting because you have a lot of gamers who have gotten older and they've played all these games back in the day and then they'll say, you know what, these new games I don't want to play it or even the old games I can't play it like that anymore, it's different. Uh, I still have skills but maybe I don't have that twitch factor, maybe I don't want to stay up all night playing a game. Can you just tell us a little bit about just what it what was like like physically having to go through that because a lot of people don't really understand a true marathon they say to themselves oh i play video games for 24 hours too that's nothing they don't understand the difference between like what you do and maybe like you said someone sit on their couch just playing a nintendo right. or whatever for oh you know 24 hours okay some of the difference this is from where i sit um you have several different kinds of gamers you have the gamer like myself that has been around forever that's the old fart that started at the beginning and has has been there from space invaders all the way up to the ps4 and i've, I've pretty much owned every system in between i've pretty much played anything that's anything that was ever you know any kind of pop culture or anything where it was really big popular however you want to word it i've probably played it i may or may not be good at it but I've played it. I'm, I'm aware of it. I've, I've progressed over the decades. You know, I've played all these different games. That's one type of gamer. You have another type of gamer that started back when I did as well. That is an old fart too, that never moved past the eighties classics. They just, they didn't like the stuff as it progressed. Um, when it went from arcade to consoles, when it went from 2d platformer to 3d, you know, first person perspective, 
they lost a lot of players. Some of those players just never migrated. Not that their skill set wasn't there, but that just didn't appeal to them. They liked the old games, and they, they just played the crap out of the old games. You got the modern gamers. You got a lot of kids out there, a lot of younger adults that you know weren't around back then. And out of that group, you've got two groups as well. You've got one group that's couldn't care less about that old stuff. Uh, this is my grandpa played those games. Those are old. Those are crap. And then you got the other modern gamer that kind of was interested enough to to look into it and see what the roots were and and realize, damn, these are hard. <laughs> you know, there's there's some challenge here. And they and those those are some of the ones that you see that have probably broken some of those old longstanding scores. They've gotten into it. So there's several different kinds of groups, different ways to look at it. Getting into the marathon aspect, there's people that have played a game where they've, they've got up in the morning and they've played a game for 12 hours or 14 hours or 16 hours or whatever, and they, I marathoned it. I marathoned for 14 hours. I don't know that there's a Webster's Dictionary for what a marathon on a video game description <laughs> really is, but I think most of us old-timers in particular, I think our, our definition of a marathon is once you've missed a sleep pattern, Meaning, in general, you've had to be up 24 hours. You've played through a period, through a point where, you okay, this is normally your bedtime. You'd be in bed now. And you stayed awake. And you didn't just stay awake for a couple hours playing. You stayed awake all the way through the time that you normally would have been asleep. And then the time when you would have woke up the next day, you're still playing. And you keep playing. That, to, to me, is, a, is the definition of a marathon. And the difference between the people that play the old stuff, like I, I've got my record on, and some of these modern gamers sitting on the couch, sitting on, you know, playing a console, I think the difficulty on the older stuff is harder. Um, on an arcade machine, you're, you're a lot more limited on your positions and the, the, the chair, the, the sofa, you know, whatever that you can set in and be comfortable on. And, but the biggest difference is a console game can be paused. Um, a lot of console games, uh, Call of Duty, comes to mind you know you can die and you can die and you can die and you can respawn and you can respawn and your game doesn't end you know you just you respond in, indefinitely or you can find a plot a spot where you've you've cleared out whatever you know the enemies were and you could just stand there because there's no threat and you can just leave your character sitting right there and you can run to the bathroom or go get a drink or whatever it is that you want to do and you have no fear of your game ending well the the old games especially like the old arcade games it was one quarter one credit there's no pause uh, the only way to keep the game going is to keep the game going. And like in the case of Nibbler, you have to keep earning lives. You can go to the bathroom. I mean, obviously, in 24 hours and 48 hours, you're, you're not going to stand at that machine probably and, and not go to the bathroom. I mean, there's there's, <laughs> there's several ways around that, but uh, <laughs> I don't like any of them. Uh, but Nibbler has, you can only have 127 lives. If you go past that, your game's over. It'll It'll just simply come up. The next time you die, once you go past that point, it comes up to enter your initials. Your game's over. It was a, I don't know if it was a glitch or if they ran out of memory or, or whatever the situation was, but the game doesn't recognize 128 lives. And me and some of the players back in the day, we, we knew that. We discovered that. And we thought, well, what if you can play and earn your next guy? So we played to 129, and then we died. Game over. So we'd try again. We'd play to where we knew we had 130 lives. We'd die game over we'd try it again we did that 131 132 33 34 35 and that was about as far as we could go without accidentally dying you know that's uh a life is four levels so from 128 to 135 is seven lives we had to play 28 levels without dying so it got to the point where eh, yeah if you go past 127 your game's over don't do that so on nibbler uh once it goes past 99 it shows it looks like hexadecimal but it's not. It doesn't increment correctly. But it shows digits and letters. You have A's and E's and B's and all kinds of weird stuff. So we kind of made a little chart that said, okay, when I went from 99, I went to 100, this is what it displayed. And when I earned my next life, this is what it displayed. When I earned my, you know, we, we charted out what would be 100 and 101 and 102 and so forth. When you get to 126, ironically, 126 is displayed as zero. It's the only one past 99 that has a zero. And it's right before, you know, the 127, which ends your game. So that's always been a good sign. You, No matter how tired you get, when you see zero, hey, <laughs> you need to stop and uh, take a break. Go to the bathroom, go get a drink, go outside and get some fresh air, you know, walk around the room, whatever. Get up, stretch your legs, let some of your lives die off. 
So on the old machines, you had to keep track of your lives. You had to keep earning them, and you had in some games like Nibbler, you had to keep dumping them to to prevent the game from ending. So it was kind of a fine line, but there was no pause. There was no quitting. Some of the other games was even harder, um, Robotron and Defender and uh, Stargate and Joust, because they only displayed lives as little figures, like down at the bottom of the screen. They'd only show like seven or eight lives. So unless you had somebody sitting there with pen and paper or a counter or you know some kind of way to keep track, you didn't know how many lives you had. So that was a challenge on those games. You'd have somebody that was there to help you and, and hopefully keep track of your lives. Okay, click, he gained a life, gained a life, gained a life. Oh, he died, take one off, or you know. So there was different things you had to contend with on the old machines. That's not a problem on new games. There's I don't yeah. can't hardly think of a new game where the game just ends because oh he died three times, his game's over, you know. And I don't think people understand that. Um, not to call anybody out or pick on anybody necessarily, but uh, well, I'm not going to mention his name. No, you, yeah. gotta, you know you got to do it now. <laughs> this show, we, we, we feed off of this, so uh-uh, you got to give it to us now. You ever heard of a gamer named Triforce? Of course. All right. I figured you had. We were talking about doing a charity event in Ottumwa, Iowa. They'd had the Big Bang in 2010, and we were talking about what we were potentially going to do in 2011. And I had suggested what, back in the day, we had referred to as an Iron Man contest, meaning who could stay awake and play the longest. Back in the day, we were, we were crazy. We thought we could play 100 hours. Um, there's actually been a few gamers approach that in the last few years, and they're crazy, but that's a whole different story. Anyway... Um, we were talking about doing marathons, having a bunch of players get together, do a marathon, and maybe finding sponsors where, okay, if you last 20 hours, I pledge $50 or you know whatever the amount would be to try to raise money for a charity or something, some, some worthy cause that we all deem to be worthy. So we're talking about different games, and you know, of course, I'm going to play Nibbler. And uh, Triforce says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play Tetris. What? <laughs> You're going to do what? You can't marathon Tetris. He's talking about on a console. And we're like, you can't really take a break on that. How are you going to And his idea was, well, when you guys go take your break, I'll just pause the game. And we're like, you can't do that. That's <laughs> We're not pausing our game. Well, you're, you're leaving the game and you're going to the bathroom. But our game's not pausing. Our game's still running. Our players are dying. Our game is not paused. Well, it's only fair that I get to pause my game while you guys take a break. And I said, no. We pick our games based on the fact that we can keep them going. That's what makes them a marathonable game. It's not like we just decided, well, I'm good at this game and I can pause it every, you know, so often. So this is the one I'm going to play. It's not how marathons were done. Um, Billy Mitchell, he marathoned Centipede back in the day. That's insane. You only get six lives. That's the most you can have at one time. Um put it the most polite way I can, they had a really long extension cord on Billy's machine, so the machine moved when he needed to move. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, that was how they overcame that one. But uh, that's not a good marathonable title, but he made it work because he's Billy Mitchell, I guess, you know. (laughs) And I I seen people marathon Star Wars, which to me was insane because you only get six shields. The longest I ever personally witnessed somebody play that game was like 26, 27 hours. But I know it's been played into, I believe, like 68-hour mark, somewhere in there, which I, I question how, and uh, I was told, depends. And I'm like, nah, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just nope. There's some things I'm not interested in doing for, for anything, especially just for a video game score, you know? Yeah. Hey, more power to the player. However however they they can overcome the obstacles that are before them. But uh, yeah, that's that's some of the difference between the old mentality and the new mentality. And it's like you don't get pauses. There's no pauses. There's no timeout. You know, it just it don't work that way. I, I'm really curious about the, I guess, celebrity aspect of it because I know that for me personally, I grew up with games and I saw games like Starcade. I I keep forgetting the name of the one. There was one game where you would play against other people and then you would run around in what looked like a, a blockbuster video of video games and you would pick out games and that was part of, uh, of the of the the game show and I grew up and I was just thinking to myself even back then like wow these guys are cool and then of course seeing people in, in gaming you know that came up in Walter Day having all the the scores 
and I just think about overall the celebrity aspect. Now you have like Billy Mitchell that has that. He to me it's like the original like, uh, you know the cockiness that you that you see in gamers today. Like he had that back then, and you see that in the films and things like that. And I'm just curious about the celebrity aspect of it, like a, a gamer being able to get recognized for the game and actually being looked at as like, wow, these people are cool. These people do something awesome. Um, can you just tell us maybe about that aspect of, you know, being asked to be in films, you know, people want to hear your perspective, like what that felt like. I don't know if I'm the person to ask that because I haven't been in a bunch of films, you know. <laughs> it's not like people have been beating my door down and going, hey, Tim, we need a video gamer to be in Pixels or we need, you know, something like that. Um, Billy's been in a number for sure. He's He's got to be about the most famous player in the world. I mean, probably multiple reasons. Um, he just, he's got a look. I mean, he's he's tall. He just... His presence when you when you walk into a room and there's a bunch of gamers in there, you see Billy. I mean, he literally stands head and shoulders above a lot of us. He's just a big guy, tall guy, but he's he's a nice guy. Um, I think people get false impression of him sometimes based on some of these movies of uh, his arrogance or his cockiness. And he, sure, he has some of that, but uh, he's got a heart of gold too. You know, I, I read some of the reviews, some of the early reviews about my movie and they're like, and they had to put, of course, you couldn't do a documentary without having Walter Day or Billy Mitchell in it. Well, we didn't just go out and say, hey, we need Billy and Walter to be in this movie to make this an official doc or, you know, whatever. They were part of the story. They were there. Um, I've been friends with Billy since we were teenagers because he's one of the guys that used to come to Otomwa. He's one of the guys that during my game, he helped me watch my lives. He reminded me a couple times, hey, Tim. Need to take a break. You're, you're getting too close to 127. You know, hey, do you need anything to eat? Do you need anything to drink? He'd grab me a Coke or, you know, whatever. And and Walter was there. It was Walter's arcade. Walter was the referee. He, you know, he witnessed it. He officiated it. And I, I've known him all my life. And so they were part of the story. I mean, that wasn't fabricated. That's why I said earlier, I hate to say Tim and Andy told their story because it makes it sound like they're they're making a film as opposed to a documentary. And it really is a documentary. They documented the events as they happened. But at the same time, they didn't show you all 500 hours. They tried to make it entertaining to the viewer. So in a way, it's kind of a film, but it's not really fabricated. So it's not like we went out and hired these guys or asked these guys to be in it to make it official. They're, they were there. They should have been there. They were part of the story. They deserve to be there. And I think when you see the film, you'll see how they add to the story. But it felt good to be the focus of the story. As far as being uh, a celebrity, that's not me. I mean, I, I'm sure I've I've had some celebrity from this. I, I, well, I know I have. I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm not totally unnoticed. But it's not like I walk into a restaurant and somebody goes, hey, look, there's Tim McVeigh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I could see that happening to Billy. I mean, if he walked into uh, probably about any arcade in the country. I mean, anybody that was into arcade machines that knows what the classic machines are, if if Billy was to walk into their arcade, I'm sure that, you know, the vast majority of all of them would go, wow, Billy Mitchell's in my arcade. I'm pretty sure I could walk into those same arcades and have a far lower recognition rate. And I'm okay with that. Um, you know, it's not my life. It's my hobby. And I have fun with that. But uh, it feels good to have my story told. Um, I'm proud of what I did, you know. It's... I make a joke of it now, though. Um, not that the score is a joke or anything like that. I am very proud of what I accomplished. I'm more proud of the fact that I was able to do it again so many years later, so much older. Because, oh, you get older, you get slower, your hand-eye coordination isn't as good. Bullshit. Right. I, did it, I did it six hours faster than I did it as a kid. Wow. Old man Tim kicked the kid's butt. You know, so, <laughs> so I was proud of that. How many people can say they set a world record in anything? And then turn around and say, 25 years later, as an adult, they were able to beat that world record and do it better. I'm very proud of that. But at the end of the day, I also know that's a score on a screen. It's a video game. I didn't cure cancer. You know, it's not rocket science. Um, I, I haven't made the world a better place. I haven't, you know, when I'm dead and gone, are people going to remember me from a video game score? Some might. Um not like i invented something or you know something that's a lasting uh tool or uh, a benefit to mankind you know it's a video game but in that perspective it's fun it, it's kind of cool i'd rather have a little bit of recognition than just you know be nobody i guess but i never set out to play these games for people to go oh look it's tim mcveigh 
I had I played what I played because I enjoyed playing them, and I just happened to get good at one. I mean, really good at one. And it's funny I, I've talked about this a little bit with some of my coworkers. You know, uh, a lot of them when I started had no idea, and a lot of this has been going on while I started a new job about five and a half years ago. And they actually came in, they did some filming at work and stuff, and people were like, "What? What? What's with the cameras? You know, what's going on?" And I explained it to them, and so then it became, "Oh, Tim's a video game god," and I'm like. Just because I'm good at one video game does not, you know, not even remotely make me a master at video games. You know, I can I can pretty much wipe anybody up on Nibbler with very few exceptions. Doesn't mean I can jump into Call of Duty and go out there and go have a kill-death ratio of 30 to 1 or something, you know. Uh, my kill-death ratio is more upside down than that. <laughs> but I have fun playing it. You know, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it by any stretch, but it's it's a lot of fun. That's a game where I play with teammates, and my team function is patrol the skies, carry a rocket launcher. If it's in the air, make sure it's not. K the KD ratio is not a big deal in that environment. You know, different things like that. Just because you're good at something don't mean you're good at everything. But it is fun to uh, talk to people. It, it's, it's an icebreaker. Um, like if I go to an arcade, go to an event, um, once this doc started coming out and people could see the trailer, more people come up and talk to me and you know ask me questions and and as that happens a little bit more often it makes me a little more comfortable in that situation but it also once people see me talking to people it seems like it makes them more comfortable to come up and ask me questions because like i said earlier when you're playing a game people talk to you well, a lot of people in modern arcades now you go into the arcade and you're playing a game it's like it's like they're at a golf course and tiger woods is getting ready to shoot it's like <laughs> shh, 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 tim's getting ready to play be quiet keep it down you know it's not like that i and they're being respectful, but it's just it's it's so weird to see the 80s versus now, and because of social media and you know Twitch and the lack of arcade and the social gathering and talking, just the differences over the years, the differences in the games, the differences in the people, the differences in the attitudes. In the arcade in the 80s, people were sociable. They talked to each other. They encouraged each other. Like you'd said earlier, something about if you build up a gamer, you build up all gamers. Instead of being one of the gamers that has to tear people down and attack people. That's a sad side of our hobby. Um, arcade gaming in particular, classic arcade gaming, is, is such a small niche community. And you see the people, the infighting. And it's not just classic arcade gamers. I'm sure it exists in probably every segment for whatever reason there's a lot of negative people out there but it's kind of sad because it doesn't make you better because you're tearing somebody else down it just makes everybody look petty and we don't need that um that's why when i said earlier i i told him about Dwayne, i told him about rick and i told him about a lot i wanted everybody to have due credit you know they were part of the story in in various ways and some of it made it into the film and some of it didn't um tim and andy said they've been working on dvd extras and they have like 50 minutes of extras so far well, 500 hours of footage, you know, an hour and 34 minutes, whatever the, the runtime is, 50 minutes of extras. I haven't seen the extras, so I have no idea what that is. Can't wait to see it. Um, I, the only raw footage I'm aware of is the stuff I was in. So there's a lot of cool stuff out there. But, I mean, I tried to bring everybody into it because I didn't want it to, to turn into King of Kong. Well, they, they, they pushed this person away and they edited him out and they didn't, they didn't even talk about him. And I didn't want any of that crap. If, if somebody did something worth recognizing, I wanted them to be recognized for it. Yeah. I, I personally, I think that while I understand your sentiment about not, you know, creating something like you know, curing cancer or something like that. I think that in, in video games, like how you see in like film or music, it's, it's okay to celebrate people who did something great, did something awesome, you know, within that field. So, you know, it's, I think that it'd be more helpful if uh, gamers appreciate other gamers, even if you want to challenge them, it's no problem to say to yourself, Hey, I want to beat that guy. I want to beat that score. That's fine. But appreciate, you know, what people have done just like other uh, industries. And, and I think that overall that just makes gaming better. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, even having all different documentaries that came out, because I remember at one time you'd see like one documentary and now you see a bunch of different ones. So I just hope that a lot of people will go out and see Man vs. Snake. I know it's making the um, the film festivals. Right now I'm going to go out and see it because I want to see the whole, whole thing. But I just really want to thank you for coming on and you know, talking with us, sharing your story, because, you know, a lot of people are interested in that, you know, you, of course, you're gonna have some gamers that are like, oh, who cares, but 
there's a lot of people that do like to hear about that. And, you know, it may even inspire them to say, hey, let me give this a run and see what I can do. Right. And I hope I hope that's the takeaway. I hope uh, one of the things I think man versus snake shows is uh, is something I'm very proud of is perseverance. If if the first time I, I tried it and I failed and I just said, can't do this, we wouldn't even be talking right now. You know, so I hope there's a takeaway there that people see if there's something that you really are passionate about, something that you enjoy, that you're doing it for the right reasons. You're you're not doing it to tear somebody down. You're doing it because you enjoy it. You're doing it because you're good at it. You're doing it because it's fun, whatever the reason. But if there's something that you want to do and, and if it's break a record or set a record or whatever it is, you can do it if you if you dedicate some time to it and put the energy and the effort into doing it. You know, that that's a. Uh, there's, there's there's some very positive things in the film, and I don't want to point them out too much. I don't want to have spoilers for people that haven't seen it. I like people to be surprised. They uh, they got me a few times. They had me in tears at least twice. Um, they they tracked down an interview with my mother, who uh, she passed away in 1999. So when I saw the film last September, there's there's an interview with my mom, and I haven't seen a video or heard my mom's voice in 16 years. And then on top of that, not only did she pass away in 99, but that video interview was from 1984. Wow. So it's 30-year-old footage that I had never seen. And I, I was like, jaw on the floor. I, I didn't know they found that. that. That blew me away. These guys really went deep. I mean, they asked, uh, back in the day, they asked, you know, what, what TV stations were there? Who can you remember being there that might have had a camera? That Can you remember any local stations that showed it on the news? Or you know, And I told them all, all the local stations. And we're talking, you know, 25, 30 years ago. How many local stations keep archive footage that's that old and have some way to retrieve it and locate it and identify it? And it just, it blew me away. And uh, there's some stuff in that. And you, you see some of the competition on the good side. Um, there's people that think Dwayne and I don't really like each other because of the trailer, uh, especially the first trailer. And Dwayne makes that repo man line. He's, they think I come to kill him, and I would. And he hits that punching bag. And... <laughs> yeah. He's great. He's one of my best friends. We talk all the time. Um, we have each other's phone numbers. We're always texting. We talk. He's, he's been to my house. I haven't been to his because I haven't went to Canada yet. I'm not quite as crazy as Dwayne is. <laughs> he, was, he was doing a documentary, so he came down, and he's doing his own doc on some other stuff. And, but uh, I think the camaraderie in the old gamers, a lot of it is still there. Um, I think a lot of people are more supportive of it. And... You know, even though, like I said, I didn't cure cancer or anything, I did lay some groundwork that there's different things that I, I personally have done or that's happened with groups of us that uh, have laid the foundation for a lot of what's going on now. Um, when you talk about it and you claim it, then people will go, oh, he's taking credit for that. Well, some of it happened that way. You know, there's, there's a Hall of Fame in Ottawa, Iowa. I had the filmmakers with me. And we went down to the local bike shop, because I used to race BMX, and we talked to Josh Gettings. Josh Gettings is involved in the city, in, as far as the Chamber of Commerce and different things like that. And one thing led to another, and there's an IVGHOF, the International Video Game Hall of Fame, and it's located in Ottumwa, Iowa. There's not a physical building yet, but there is an entity, and they're working towards a physical museum and you know having historical artifacts and stuff like that. Because of us going and talking to Josh, that was kind of one of the things that made that ball start rolling. Um, Dwayne and I, we went out to MAGFest in 2009. We played head-to-head. -head. As far as I know, nobody had ever streamed a live head-to-head -head marathon on an arcade machine. Nobody was streaming anything. And that was one of our things for going is we absolutely insisted. No matter what they did, they had to put it on the Internet. Our friends and family back home had to be able to watch. Not everybody could afford to go to Alexandria, Virginia to watch it. And if we were both going to go so far from our homes to play our games against each other, our friends and family had to have access to that. That We were adamant about that. We would not go unless that happened. So we kind of helped start that a little bit, I think. And I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff that classic gamers did that maybe we weren't actual esports, but there was tournaments and there was teams and there was competition and aspects of what we see in modern esports today everything started somewhere and there's a there's a foundation there and we're, we're part of that foundation we're part of that history everything that's happened today was built upon something that happened yesterday it didn't just all of a sudden appear today 
So I'm proud of that. You know, there's there's a little bit of a legacy. So I'm proud of the fact that I can say I'm one of those people. But different people view history in different ways. I had one guy tell me that I was part of the Holy Trinity in video gaming. I was like, what? <laughs> and his, his Holy Trinity was the, if I remember right, it was the first billion point game, the first perfect Pac-Man. I think he said the first kill screen on Donkey Kong. I, I don't remember. He had three things that was, to him, you know, these, these were way up there. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Thank you. You know, but um, I, I'm realistic. There was a game in the day called Victory. And the game ended at 999,999,999. One point short of a billion. Score stopped. You couldn't score no more points. You could not get a billion. So people had maxed that score out before we were even over... I think Tom had 838 million on Nibbler. So had that game allowed it, the billion would have been done right there. So it's the right place, the right time, the right game, the right environment. But I was also the right person to do it. Um, at least I like to think that. I had a couple people tell me that in different things we talked about. I, I made the comment, you know, right person, right place, right time. And they're like, but you were the right person too. And they, they, they backed that up by trying to explain to me that without me, nobody knows who Nibbler is. No, nobody knows what Nibbler is. I made the game significant, and the only reason we're talking about it right now is because of what I did on the game. And I sat there, and I took that, and I thought, well, yeah, I can't really argue with that, but, you know, and I still think, well, I didn't cure cancer, <laughs> you know? But they pointed out, you know, everybody played Pac-Man. You know, everybody. Everybody played Space Invaders. A lot of these games were famous without any one person making them famous. Without me doing what I did on Nibbler, nobody knows what Nibbler is. And I said, well, you can flip that coin over and say, without Nibbler, nobody knows who I am either. So, you know, there's two sides to every coin. Video gaming is funny. Just the way uh, things lead to one thing to another sometimes. And I'm sorry if I'm rambling. It's <laughs> when, when I get asked a question, my mind kind of goes in so many different directions, it's hard to stay on track and just answer the one question I'm asked. I'm, <laughs> no. I'm very guilty of that. I do, I do the same thing, but no, I, I, I appreciate all, all the insight that you've given us because, I mean, a lot of times people want to know about you know, not only what it takes to get that far, but what it's like once you get there. Uh, as you said, there's a lot of people who are playing games now and they're hoping to get some kind of fame. And even though that's not what you did for, you did it for the love of, of it. There's also people that's doing it for the love of it as well. And, you know, getting this kind of insight, talking uh, to different people like yourself who've done these things, have been in, in film and had people follow them, you know, I think it's an inspiration to, to a lot of people. So once again, thanks for coming on and talking with us. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, when you get a chance to see the film, if you ever want to do a follow-up and talk about, you know, what it is after you've seen it, if there's any questions you have, you've got my contact info. Um, I'd be more than happy to go through some more of it with you. Awesome. So the film is Man vs. Snake. You can find out more about it on manversusnake.com. Once again, Tim, thanks for coming on and talking with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.